who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. This week's fix is the Ancestor Q&A, and I have the FDO on the line with me, and we're going to go over questions that came in on Twitter and Facebook and the site uh, and uh, email and uh, MP3s about um, this most recent Ancestor podcast that ended last week. Are you out there, Scott? I'm here. I'm here. Thank you for joining the live Q&A on the Friday Fix. How are you? I'm pooped. I've been working on Nocturnal and the All Pro and Bloodcast, uh, and it's a sleep optional month, mm. so a little, <laughs> a little bit pooped, but I'm sure I'll get fired up for this. Yeah, I'm sure you will too. I know that we had a lot of, uh, just recently had a lot of fun questions, and actually throughout the, um, the whole um, podcast have had, a f- I, there are a few questions that have been um, back from the, the, the teens episodes or the 20s episodes. So I have a few of those too. So if you're ready, I'll just get down to it. I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. Do it. Do it. <laughs> I want to say first that we had a, um, a, a single actual call come in and it is, it doesn't, therefore, since all the rest of them came in in print, I'm going to ask you those questions. We're going to actually add that one singular call to the gore line because it is, um, I'll just say it's not to be missed. I know you haven't heard it yet, but if, if uh, that caller is listening, don't worry, we'll get to yours in the next gore line. Okay. 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 So I'll start asking questions. I will say if you haven't heard the Ancestor uh, podcast or audiobook or you haven't read the entire book, uh, from here on out, we are going, there are going to be spoilers in everything that we talk about. If you would not like to be spoiled, turn it off now, listen to the cast, read the book, and then come back afterwards. And they can get that at scottsigler.com for now or at patiobooks.com. So then go listen to the whole thing, then come back and hear these awesome questions. Awesome, spoilerific questions. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so we'll start. Uh, Josh asks, did you base Magnus loosely off of any fictional character? Uh, no, I did not base Magnus off of any fictional characters. He just, just one of the guys that kind of popped whole cloth into existence. They, you know, there's actually been probably 25 full rewrites of Ancestor over the years. And um, I kept trying to find some kind of heavy for uh for dante paglione to have in the stable and the relationship between those two characters went from employee to old friend to brother etc so magnus has just gone through many 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 revisions however i have learned a i will tell you this that canadians do not like it when anybody insinuates that somebody in their country could possibly be a bad guy 
I have, <laughs> I have learned this firsthand from a couple of reviews from uh, Canadian newspapers who are absolutely, I mean, livid, livid that someone would insinuate a Canadian could possibly ever do evil. So I thought that was very, very fascinating. Well, I mean, if you think about it, no evil dictators from Canada. That's true. Well, so far, we're working on that. <laughs> well, I brought up Magnus first because there are several um, similar questions that that sort of surround him as, um, I think, a touchstone character. He's, of uh-huh. course, uh, larger than life and bigger than us in our day-to-day, and he gets to do all the evil things that maybe we never do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had a handful of questions that come. I'm, I'm not going to ask every single one if they're re- repetitive, but um, Sam Hemming, who is Mortimer on the site... He distilled it into this. He was interested in why between the first ancestor and the first podcast of ancestor and this one, he noticed that some of the masochism goes away. And he was interested in why you chose to do that. That was largely, uh, I fight a lot of battles with the publisher, with with Crown. Um, Crown's... Crown's job and my editor at Crown, who we nicknamed the Shiv, uh, he, you know, their job is to try and make my books as consumable by the larger populace as, as possible. So they want to try and turn it from straight up over the top science fiction horror. They want to try and get it out into the thriller area. And I, I think what they're after is to try and make it a little bit more accessible to a, a wider audience. And so there's a lot of battles content-wise there. So uh, aspiring writers might want to cue into this. Is you know the end decisions are usually mine. I can fight for whatever I want to fight for, and uh, there's a lot of give and take with the editors at Crown. But that was one of the things they felt Magnus was so far over the top that he wasn't believable at all, and they thought it would benefit the story if we we dialed some of that back a little bit. Um, and it, you know, I kind of experimented with it in the manuscript, and then after a while, it just, after a couple more revisions, uh, the the more the more laid back, calm, cool, evil Magnus seemed to have more of an impact. When he finally got around to doing the really bad things that that he does, it it felt a little bit more oddly. It felt a little bit more disturbing to me because he wasn't completely bug nuts crazy through the whole thing. He seems pretty sane through most of the book, mm. and then as you gradually reveal what he did to Galena and you gradually reveal what he does, you know, what his plans are for black Manitou Island staff. Um, it, it creates more dynamic tension. I think it, there's a bigger character arc for him. Instead of just being straight off the top, we're crazy. You start out not really being sure about him. And then there's some discovery as it progresses. But I, I really actually, I kind of miss that part and you'll probably see that <laughs> I'll sneak that into another character sometime in the future. Cause it was it, the, the self cutting was cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so stepping a little bit away from the Magnus that is currently on the page, there are a handful of theoretical questions playing off of his badassery that, <clears throat> like, Tony McGarry wants to know. He says, we know that Magnus is crazy, we know that he has to be sp- stopped, but who could stop such a madman as that? And Tony would be willing to bet that even the grave couldn't stop Magnus and wants you to confirm that he'll be back. <laughs> Tony, we're still working on our T-shirt, uh, which says the Sigler verse dead equals dead. Um, we don't we don't do that. We if, if there, actually and this this goes all the way back to my uh, game, my dungeon master and game master days from my my nerdy high school background, where um, my the, the people who played in my campaigns understood 
that if they saw a body and it was a dead body, that was it. That character was not coming back. And uh, on the same token, if they didn't see the body, well, then probably the, the guy was still alive out there somewhere. But what that did was it it ramped up a level of tension in those games, and that's carried over into the fiction, where, you know, Buffy's the classic example. Once Buffy dies and then comes back, the show went completely off the rails because you just, you had no, you, you were no longer concerned that there, she was ever really in any danger. I mean, you sort of knew she wasn't all along because it was a fun show and she was the title character and you knew nothing was going to happen to her. But when they actually brought her back from the dead, at that point, you're just like, oh, okay. It, it just, it kind of takes some of the fun out of it. So what I do sort of goes against the grain in genre fiction, which is if I kill a character, that's it, they're dead. And the the big reason I do that is I'm heavily influenced by Stephen King. And one of the things that Stephen King that makes his stuff so edge of the seat got to turn the page, I'll stay up till four in the morning, is everybody's in danger all the time. Every character can die at any given moment. You can turn a page and somebody can get whacked. Uh, and that uh, that really adds to the tension level, as opposed to, say, Robin Cook or Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, where you know exactly who's going to live as soon as the book starts. Like, you have no question. So you're never really that much involved with the character. That's a long-winded way of saying that when you see someone die, in one of my books, they're not coming back. However, however, <laughs> that, that does not mean that someday when I have some free time, there could be some Magnus Paglione uh, prequels and you could see some of his actions from back in the day, which brings up another problem. If it's a prequel, as soon as he gets in danger, you know he's not going to die because you've seen him in Ancestor. But hopefully someday we'll get to bring some of these characters back and have them interact. What I've always wanted to do is have a a story from many, many years ago with Kayla Myers from Earth Corps and Magnus Paglione. I thought mm-hmm. that'd be pretty fun. I'd feel really, I'd feel really bad for any other characters in that story because they're probably not going to make it. Yeah. I know that you and I have discussed for the GFL series exactly this problem in that if you're making a franchise character, how do you build the dramatic tension and that kind of thing? And I think dead is dead is dead is dead. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, maybe you know that, that Quentin was the rookie and is the starter. And you still know that he may or may not die throughout all of the books, the whole story arc. But it's not just dead equals dead. It's hurt equals hurt. It's heartbroken mm-hmm. equals heartbroken. Mm-hmm. The worst thing uh, is to die, but it isn't the only thing that could happen to a character. And I think it's easier to believe in the characters and the story and the, the thread of the story arc if you know that all of those things are consistent. And I think you do that. I think that's really one of the things, one of the hidden elements of what I try and do when I try and fuck with all y'all's brains and pull you into the story at a more emotional, visceral level, a subconscious level. It's that, yeah, you know these guys are in actual trouble. With the Rookie series, the GFL series, it's it's different because... You, you really have no concerns that Quentin's going to make it because odds are he, he's going to make it. But what's going to happen to the, the team each year? That's the big, uh, the big thing that's dangling out there. Are they going to win and go to the next level or are they going to lose and be sent back a level? And that, that acts just like wondering whether a character is going to live or not. Mm-hmm. So I was actually going to go character by character, but you sort of took a little tangential um, break here. So I will inject this question from Ken Arnold. He says, I know that you've always said the canon timeline is the currently published books mm-hmm. in order, Infected, Contagious, and Ancestor. But he wants to know if Farm Girl is Kayla Myers. 
He says, it seems obvious to me, but for all I know, she's already been chopped up by the rock to pie at this point. Um, well, in uh, I will tell you this, sir, that in the timeline, Kayla Myers has not gone to uh, gone to Utah yet because that book has not happened. So you could be correct, but Senator, I can neither confirm nor deny <laughs> at this point. Well, that wasn't very much fun. <laughs> um, okay, so moving back then to Magnus, just for a couple more questions. Steve Compton, who's Comptonius on the site, asks, uh, if Magnus was such a badass, why did he play in the CFL and not in the big leagues? Listen, Comptonius, <laughs> first of all, don't badmouth my Canadian friends, all right, right off the bat. And if you are Canadian, don't badmouth yourself. Don't don't be that guy. Um like all the non-NFL professional football leagues, there are still some major, major athletes uh, in those organizations. And uh, and Magnus just wanted to play for, he wanted to play in the CFL. Could he have made it in the NFL? That's a bigger question. Uh, guys, Because guys who can play professional ball and play at a, a high level in other leagues, you know, might not even make it on an NFL team. That's something you got to keep in mind. Guys who have Division One full rides, guys who are all-stars in college, some of the dudes who played in NFL Europe, um, et cetera, though, those guys might not even make it in the NFL. So that's maybe that's the reason. He didn't get an invite. Maybe he didn't, nobody asked him, or he just wanted to play in Canada. Hmm. Maybe he just wanted to play in Canada. Yeah, and, and killing, the, killing people and playing tight end are two completely different skill sets. So, yes, he is a badass, but that doesn't uh, that doesn't affect his time in the forty or his reaction time to catch a ball or his ability to block someone who weighs three hundred pounds. Well, at least in these stories, seven hundred years from now in the GFL series, playing football and killing people might overlap a little more. That's true. That's true. Those are those are compatible skills. <laughs> okay. Uh, one last question about Magnus. Mm -hmm. which is, again, esoteric. Joshua Hudson asks, if Ancestor became a movie, who would you want to play the, the roles of Clayton Detweiler and Magnus Paglio? Um, gosh, I, you know, this, these shift all the time, all the time. But Clayton Detweiler, if, uh, if we could get Clint Eastwood for that, I would just think that would be, I don't know if he can do a Uber accent or not. Um, he's probably a little tall for the part that I think, but um, I just, I'm, I'm a huge man crush on Clint Eastwood still and want him someday if I can get a movie made before he kicks off. It would be pretty sweet to get him in that role. Um, and then as far as as Magnus goes, it kind of varies. I still think that uh, we could get The Rock to play Magnus if, mm. he would, if he'd go back to playing a bad guy. I just think he's one of the most underrated actors out there. I'm not saying necessarily he deserves an Oscar for what he does, but he gets very little credit. Uh, if you've ever seen him in the rundown, mm -hmm. he's just, he's fantastic. Fantastic in that. I would love to see him do it. Um, I also, you know, I could see somebody like a, a Hunter Hearst Helmsley, like an ex-wrestler playing the part. Uh, there's not a lot of guys who are big enough to pull that part off the way it's written in the book, but you could get, I, I, I'm not really sure. You could get probably any number of guys to play that role. Mm-hmm. Um, Moving on to Clayton, since we've started talking about him, uh, mm -hmm. Stephen Watt says, Ancestor was great, uh, looking forward to the last episode, but he wanted to ask, where did you get the idea for the character for Clayton? Because he reminds Stephen of Sonny McGinnis from Earth Corps, and they're both great characters. They are, they're very, they're similar. They're both the, they're both the salt of the earth character. They are both 
um, the sort of the real world balance to the over the top movie action that's going on because I, I try and play both of those characters in in some some extent as if I was stuck on an island with other people in this crazy science fiction research project going on, I might have something different to say other than we've got to stop them from getting to the mainland. What could happen to humanity and all the other <laughs> crazy bullshit you see in a movie? You need somebody out there who's just like, ah, fuck that. I ain't getting killed for him, eh? You know, you need you need that regular guy out there. So they're um they are a little bit they are a little bit similar. The inspiration from him is actually uh, the husband of the woman who used to babysit me when I was little, like five or six or seven in that in that ballpark. Um, and they were, uh, his name was John Kavich, and he, he was, I can't remember if he was a youper, but he looked exactly like I described Clayton in the book and just, just you know, just complete salt of the earth, no concept of decorum. He was going to say whatever was on his mind and, and the greatest guy in the world. And um, as far as the accent and the general attitude goes, a lot of that dials back to growing up in northern Michigan and being very close to the UP and interacting with UPers all the time. Mm. Okay, doke. Okay, so I have a few more character questions and then we'll move on to sort of more general questions. Okay. A question about Mookie. Uh, Tom Croucher asks if Mookie is going to make it back into any more books or are you going to be a bastard and kill off an awesome character like her? Well, <laughs> those, <laughs> those that don't, uh, those that haven't been following along uh, for the past five years may or may not know that um, uh, the dog that was an ancestor used to be named Pasty. Mm-hmm. And I changed that to Mookie um, after Mookie, my dog Mookie, of my dog of 14 years passed on so that she could have a little little slice of immortality in the book. So the odds of me killing Mookie in any book are slim to none. I mean, <laughs> it's probably it's probably not going to happen. You will see her again if if I can write the sequel to Ancestor, which I've tentatively titled Descendant. If I ever write Descendant, I guarantee you will see Mookie again. Mm, I like that. Alaskan Critter uh, on the site also asked about Mookie and asks, so when you sell your new children's book, Mookie's Big Adventure, will it come with a free Sigler toy for your dog to chew the shit out of? Because I think that would be sort of cool. I think that's kind of mandatory. <laughs> I, I, I want, <laughs> my dog toy, of course, will be a person uh, that has Velcro belly. So when the dog shakes it, all the little, all the little stuffed innards fly out mm. all over the place and the dog can chase those as well. That's horrible. Yep. yep. <laughs> that's horrible. Horrible. Because, you know, I'm, I'm telling you guys that when you dangle that treat in front of your dog and, ma- and make him or her sit, that's what they're thinking. They do want to gut you. Hmm. Okay, so moving on to, we had a handful of questions about Gunther. The first one is from Zippy, and she asks, why did you have to kill Gunther? He was on his way to greatness, obviously, and will you continue <laughs> the Hot Midnight series on his behalf? <laughs> well, um, I've often thought that uh, if I ever do get heavily into drugs, um, uh, it's not on the agenda for this week, but maybe sometime in the far future. Mm. uh, That would be a great series to write when I'm just stoned out of my gourd. Um, Why I killed him? Because it was his time. He was on the island. And I I really try hard to just where, where the characters wind up in the situation that's degenerating that's where they, when their number's up, their number's up. And it surprises me a lot of the time. And if it surprises me when a character has to die, then I'm pretty sure, uh, it, I'm pretty sure it won't seem prefabricated too much 
to the reader. So it was just kind of Gunther's time. Mm-hmm. And there have been other references to the to the Hot Midnight series. Uh, there there are some in other books. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, I can I can promise you, eventually, you're going to see a few more excerpts of ruby penises and um, <laughs> sparkly ruby penises, well, sparkly ruby penises, and well endowed vampire stable boys. I think sparkly ruby penises is not a bad band name. No, I'd be a good name. Yeah. <laughs> The Supreme Narratard on the site actually also sort of follows up with a Hot Midnight question. He says, everyone in Ancestor who's gotten their hands on the Hot Midnight series has clearly loved it, even though they profess to hate it. And he's mm-hmm. wondering if that is secretly a cry for help from the Dark Overlord himself. <laughs> no, no. What it, uh, what it is, is it's kind of a commentary um, on everybody who bags on Stephanie Myers and the romance novelists in general. And the number one genre in fiction is romance. Uh, people who read that stuff, they go through it like, like Pez. I mean, it's just book after book after book. And it, it, gets, it gets even less respect than genre fiction gets, science fiction and horror and fantasy. Um, and, you know, the, it's amazing. You're like, there's millions of people out there who are being entertained, who are spending their money, who are happy with the products that they're buying, there are authors who are making their living at this. It's a big, happy circle uh, where everybody wins, and yet, uh, it, you know, the the well known writers or the literary people rip on it all the time. So I kind of picked Stephanie Myers out as a focal point for that. You know, paranormal romance is still just the heavyweight in the industry right now. It's still kicking the crap out of absolutely everything. You know, be it Laurel K. Hamilton or be it Stephanie Myers, etc. So it was one of those things where I just kind of use it as an example. Everybody says, oh, that'd be crap. I wouldn't want to read that. And then they read it and they actually like it. Now, that being said, (laughs) I did read, uh, I got a free sample of the first 50 pages of um, Twilight, I think is the first one. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't get through it. It's just not for me. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a cry for help. It's more of a sociopolitical commentary is what it is. (laughs) It's a cultural observation because that's what we writers do. Okay. You know, and I actually have a lot of respect for that idea. You're fairly consistent in that idea that to you as a writer, and also I think one of the qualities you look for in other writers is that they are entertaining the people who are spending their time and energy and money Mm -hmm. on the efforts that you're putting out. And, And certainly Stephanie Myers meets that qualification for many, 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 many people. It's interesting how many people sort of see that bit that Gunther, Gunther goes through as a commentary of you saying, oh, pfft, Twilight, when it's really you saying, dudes, it worked for her and it works for tons of people and it makes tons of people happy. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with any of that. Yeah, it's one of those things. I thought I thought it was kind of obvious when I was writing it, but a lot of people are like, oh, you're making fun of Stephanie Meyer's awesome. I'm like, well, no, not really, but it's okay. As long as people are enjoying it, that's all that matters. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. 
Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. During Women's History Month, come explore what feminism means to you with nonfiction storytelling podcast, Thread the Needle. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. So one more specific character question, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the book and, and the ancestors in general. But this might be my favorite question that has come in for this or any other Q&A since we've been working together. Bonnie James wrote, uh, just how badass is Paul Fisher? I think he's the mowest foe in the book. <laughs> and will we see him again? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you're I'm super excited about that. Um, you're definitely going to see him again. Um, he is he's going to be more uh, the puppet mastery type character. You know, he's not going to come. He's not going to dangle upside down from a swing line under the Golden Gate Bridge firing a bow. That's not that's not Paul Fisher. So he's not you know, he's not going to be all Mac Daddy and, and sling people. But. Um, the things I have planned for him in Descendant, and he is also probably going to show up in the rewritten Earth Corps and a couple other books. He, for some reason that I can't tell, I can't, I don't know why, he is now somehow positioned himself prominently in several books that are yet to be written. So you will definitely be seeing more from him. Will you be willing to maybe describe him as a, the mowest foe in the room? I probably. It, it, it's possible. I might, <laughs> I might have to file that one away. But when I, when, I, when I write it, it's because I came up with that and I'm very clever. Well, right. And it couldn't be anything else because the FDO never lies. That's correct. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to more general ancestors and the, the book at large. Sandra Chung, she says, she loved the book. She read it in three hours. And she wonders what made you select cows as the ancestor stock as opposed to any other domesticated farm animal. Uh, all right. Well, first of all, uh, Sandra Chung really pissed me off when I was in Australia because <laughs> I tra- <laughs> I spent years on this book, you guys, years on this book. And Sandra's like a professional reader. So I meet her when I'm on tour in Australia at uh, SwanCon. SwanCon. And she, we talk. She's American. She likes talking to another American. So we, she's, oh, you're an author? Okay, I'll go check out your book. And literally comes back like the same day. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> so I really like this Sandra Chung <laughs> I wanted to shoot her in her face I won't lie to you Like how can you be done That's like years of my life And you knocked it out in, Like the same afternoon That's insane So uh, the, the reason for cows is That they are a big animal um, They're readily available It's not like we have to go find some buffalo That we're going to cultivate for this You can just get cows just about anywhere And um it just seemed like the ideal surrogate mother for a larger animal. 
remember their goal was we want to get a 200, 250 pound herd animal that we're going to be able to put out to pasture, let them reproduce and collect all these organs and solve this problem and get horribly rich in the process. Mm -hmm. So cows were the logical solution for that because there's already so much knowledge about cow reproduction. Cows are being cloned as we speak, mostly for beef. So there's a lot of existing genetic research on cows, which makes them the ideal surrogate mother for this project. Okay, doke. Ben Clifford asks, what creature from history do you think would give the most epic battle against the ancestor? What creature from history? Hmm. So I'm assuming he's talking about actual historical creatures, not mythological creatures. But I, I probably, once you get back into the into the larger raptors, into the Tyrannosaurus rex and, and the Allosaurus and Utahsaurus and those guys, um, those, those are the baddest mofos in the room. There's kind of no well, question about other that. Than, so. Other, other than Paul Fisher. <laughs> other than Paul Fisher, who could probably kill a T-Rex with his pinky while he's drinking tea with the other hand, because right. that's how bad of a mofo he is. Um, I, I, those are... You know, those are the pinnacle of predatorial evolution as far as I know. So I think the ancestors would have a tough time. However, ancestors are pack hunters and they are way smarter than even I than I even showed in Ancestor. And in Ancestor, if you were if you were following along for the folks at home, they're pretty fucking smart. They were able to put together guns, the smell of a gun. I got to stay away from this because it will kill me. I understand this thing wants to use this path. So we're going to drop trees and block this path. They're pretty wicked smart, and they might be able to figure out how to bring down a T-Rex. So mm. I, don't, I don't really know. I don't know. Uh, Michael Alonzo takes a totally different predatorial route and says, How delicious would a burger made out of ancestor meat and topped with ancestor cheese be? And maybe, if there's a way, some ancestor bacon, too. Well, I think the ancestor meat and the ancestor bacon would be particularly delicious because they're they're predators, so they're up at the top of the food chain. You know, they're amassing all that protein, and they're going to be uh, they're going to be pretty they're going to be pretty tasty. I'm not sure about the texture of the meat because it's this genetically engineered crap. Who knows how it's going to be? But as far as the cheese goes, I have not yet revealed whether you can milk an ancestor, nor have I revealed whether you would want to milk an ancestor. I was just about to say, whether or not it's possible, which it seems plausible that it, they would feed their young with milk, mm-hmm. maybe, uh, so far anyway, I don't know that that's something you would want to I'm, do. I can't really imagine anybody's ever going to find that one out. I don't think you can hook a milker up to it and, and go to town. Blarg. Also, you know, part of the flavor in traditional cow comes from the marbling of the fat in the muscles. And the ancestors, they seem pretty stocky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if maybe he, they wouldn't be so tasty because they would be kind of a lot of lean muscle. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, they're still meat, and meat is <laughs> awesome. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> therefore, therefore, I'm sure there's much worse things you could eat than an ancestor burger. Okie doke. Uh, Dorothy Michaels asked why Ruhmkorff was so awful. And I missed that when I was talking about the human characters. Um, she says, why, why did he have to be so awful? He's awful to everybody. Didn't anything make him happy? Um, now, this will be a little weird, but, you know, in some ways, Ruhmkorff is an extension of myself. Not that I'm awful to people, but uh, if you're lucky enough in life to find what it is that you really like to do, uh, everything else kind of pales uh, along next to that. And if you 
what you can really get into trouble is if your job happens to be the thing that you would do for free anyways, then you can wind up working many, many, many hours and you don't even really get necessarily a sense of satisfaction out of the job itself. It just, it just becomes this thing that pulls you along and you are compelled to do it and accomplish this, move to the next level, finish that, keep on going. So that's kind of where RoomCorp is at. He also, uh, I don't know if any of you guys get a chance to talk to any hardcore scientists or not, but even when they're absolutely delightful people, they can still be pricks in their particular area. Once they get focused on something like, this is where they're the expert, they don't really seem to have a lot of time to brook silly questions, even though they may, they may try. Eventually, they're like, okay, look, I know what I'm talking about here is the gist that will come out after a while. So RoomCorp's kind of a combination of those two. He really likes what he does. He, he, he bores easily with people who don't know as much as he does, and even the people who know as much as he does, he just sees them. They're just another molecule to be combined with this element and then make something new. That, that When he sees that Jan is actually smarter than him, he never really admits that she's smarter than him. He knows she's better in her bi- area of bioinformatics, but all he sees is, if I take what she can do and combine it with what these people can do, we can wind up making something really awesome. So he's a bit of a user, and he dehumanizes the people around him, and every everything he comes into contact with is immediately evaluated. Will this advance my agenda or will it not? If it will not, he has no time for it. If it will, he'll figure out how to use it. And it's not till the end of the book that he realizes what a what a douchebag he's been. <laughs> well, and I will make an editorial comment here that I have had occasion to interact with your secret agent scientists. I think all of them. Mm-hmm. And the commentary on the type of scientist who is a little bit smarter than you and gets a little bit abrupt. I think that might be an editorialization on your part because you hate when they tell you no. Because I don't think your secret agent scientists are at all abrupt, awful people. They all seem very, very nice. No, they're they're shockingly, shockingly tolerant of both my general ignorance in their particular disciplines and in um, that thing that you have had to deal with for the past two years, which has been which we have dubbed the gray amorphous past <laughs> or the GAP, which is pretty much if it happened more than two or three weeks ago, uh, Uncle Scotty has just doesn't even remember that it happened. <laughs> so when my when my hardcore science consultants who are extremely busy people and have libraries with many leather books, <laughs> they um when when they have to com- completely repeat something that they already taught me, they're they're patient, but they're, they're less than pleased, and I can understand that. Well, and one of them just recently in stuff that you're currently working on, I think for Nocturnal, signed off on one of his emails, which now, of course, they all send also to me so that I can help prod you along if, if you don't get to it. If you have any questions, please let me know, or, you know, just in general, if you see this email. And I laughed and <laughs> laughed and laughed. I thought, yep. You want to know the best punchline to that? Yeah. I didn't read all the way to the end of that email. I missed it. <laughs> no, I'm yeah, telling Tom. Yeah. I'm telling Tom. I'm just all saying. right. <laughs> all right. Okay. Sam Hemming, who's Mortimer on the site, has another question. Okay. In the rewrite, you seem to have added a portion where Gian impregnates herself with human ancestor eggs. Mm. But from my memory, I don't remember this in the original. Is this a setup for Descendant, or is it my forgetfulness, or what? It was not in the original podcast. It was in the uh, the trade paperback that we put out with Dragon Moon Press. So it, it was in there. I brought it. Uh, I gave it more of a spotlight while still keeping it a little bit disguised in the version that we, the final version that we put out for Crown. So 
Uh, you're, he's 100% right across the board. Wasn't in the podcast, is much more focal in, in the current podcast, the, the final podcast, and in the Crown Publishing hardcover version and paperback version. And yes, that is, that is The Descendant. So if you guys missed that at the end of the book, that's what was going on. Uh, Jameson Cows, I I can't say Jameson's last name, starts with a K. Um, He asks, are there any differences between the hardcover edition and the podcast of the hardcover edition? No, those are word for word identical. The only difference is the podcast version has the three prequel episodes. So the first three podcast episodes are not actually in the hardcover. On Twitter, BL Machine asks, what was your favorite scene in Ancestor? Which one cranked your knob way past 10? Um, I kind of like the Ancestor's birth scene. I think that that was pretty, that's the one that I enjoyed the most as, you know, when I really, when I started out, I wanted to be a horror writer. And that scene where um, Sven goes to the barn and Mookie's at his side and there's something going on in that barn and it's something real bad. And he... Is com- he has to find out what's going on in there where people like me would be like, fuck those cows. I'm out of here. I'm gone, dude. <laughs> you guys fend for your fucking selves. Um, which I say, unless, of course, my dog was in the barn, then no matter what was going on, I'd be in there. But he, he, he has to stick around beyond the point where someone who wasn't attached to the situation would have vacated, and that winds up causing him some real problems. So I think that's my single favorite scene um, from the book. The second favorite scene is probably... Uh, when Magnus first faces off against the ancestors at the old mine shaft, uh, that, that I felt, I still, even at, even after 20 tries, I didn't get exactly, it didn't feel exactly right to me, but the taking a look at, here's a guy with guns who can take out the monsters, but is smart enough to immediately calculate he can't get to them all. That seemed to be a much more realistic approach to the, to the drooling horde of monsters than most of the movies and most of the books that I read. In most of those, it's either Schwarzenegger-esque character slaughters everybody, or it's, you know, the, the monsters come at him and, you know, they, he, he can't even get off a single shot is kind of the way mm-hmm. those, those sometimes go down. So I really enjoyed that scene because he, he bagged a bunch of them, but if he hadn't found that little cubby hole, he would have been screwed. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then when the monster's sticking his head in the hole and tr- can't bite down on him because his actual lower jaw's on top of Magnus's legs and he's trying to turn his head to gnaw on that shit, uh, yeah, that was really fun. <laughs> and I'll be honest, I also like the church scene at the end. The actual uh, ancestors acting like predator animals and the church scene I would love to see in a movie. Mm. Yep, I'd like that too. Uh, Arch Avis on the site, he, he's wondering about the kill count for all the ancestors who died during the book. He says, yeah. I seem to be feeling that there are an awful lot of these suckers compared to the original herd size. Uh, I know they ate each other in the room, and we, so we can fairly safely assume that that means only one ancestor per cow. Mm-hmm. And there are several references at the end of the book to over a dozen of ancestors moving together. So he wants to know how many are left. I think I think he should go through the book and count them up, and that could be very interesting to see what numbers he comes up with. There was there was an actual kill count Excel spreadsheet, by the way. Nice. I, yes, I, I I do want to say I love, as you know, I love the junkie community at scottsigler.com. and this came out of the forums. That question came out of the forums, and the discussion that's going on in that thread is pretty interesting because um, Gmork actually answered how many humans 
she counted as dying at the, I guess, at the fangs of the ancestors, uh-huh. uh, which was an interesting thing as well. I mean, you, they're very deadly, but in 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 you know the twenty four hour day, uh, how many humans they get to? They get a bunch. There's some, there's some snacks to be had in that book. So you're yeah. saying you refuse to answer that question and tell him? Uh, I I just I'm just saying if somebody went through and tallied that up, it might lead some more insight into Descendant. Mm, I'm just saying. Okay. Okay, so Roy Herb, or Roy Herb maybe, asks if there's ever going to be a graphic novel adaptation or if there is just not enough blood-colored ink in all of creation. <laughs> well, we, we actually started one, um, but it, it was a situation where the artist, I think he got like 10, 10 pages done, and, uh, and then he was trying to get my attention to, to work on it, and I was horribly busy and terribly important doing something else. As you are, yeah. And then when I got back to him, he had the audacity to be horribly important and terribly busy himself. So we just we, we literally just kept missing on it. Um, and maybe someday we'll get back to that. I would love to do a graphic novel. But man, graphic novels, unless you've got the budget to fund the thing properly, they're it's not like doing a podcast. You're like, I'm going to go get a microphone and I'm going to get my cousin's computer and we're going to do a podcast. And you can just whip, you know, you just crank something up. We're actually about 75% of the way done with the infected graphic novel through the line art. And this has been a three-year project going on. And, uh, you know, it's, it's basically splitting it with the artist and the artist is trying to, is trying as hard as he can to get it done. But these things take forever mm-hmm. i don't know how anybody makes money on graphic novels and he's i'm like what's the hold up he's like well we need a color so i'm like great what's a colorist cost and then he told me and i'm like that's never gonna fucking happen in a million years <laughs> that's fucking insane yeah so as far as an ancestor graphic novel goes um i'm i i we'd love to get it done someday but it's it's a major project i would say that uh writing a novel spending three to six months on a novel at 40 to 50 hours a week is uh for me that's sort of doable but probably not a lot of time um and for the graphic novel i would say it's it seems like it's probably double that mm-hmm. so yeah so and we, there's no rush to get it done right now um we we also uh i speak we a and i we're trying to work on getting uh the all pro finished and getting nocturnal finishing off to crown and only after we get those done would we even look about look at contacting some of the comic book companies and saying, we have this property. Do you guys want to do something with this? Because that's a whole different... And again, that's an entirely different project that has to be done. So yeah, I want the graphic novels just for myself. I want them for the fans. And I also want them because they are now a critical element of getting a movie made. You can put a novel in front of Hollywood guys all day long if they have time to read it, which they probably don't because they are horribly important, terribly busy, and they have rooms full of leather books. Well, and uh, for them, horribly important and terribly busy does not mean FIFA as it does for you. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. There's little FIFA in their lives. I mean, yes. these guys and girls are crazy busy and their job is on the line every minute of every day. There's an enormous amount of pressure there. But if you put a graphic novel in front of them, you know, 120 pages, 160 pages, they can knock that out over lunch and now the movie's already storyboarded for them. They can immediately understand how they could package it, how they could sell it, and how they could make money at it. So that's the other real big reason we want graphic novels for the properties, but it's just, it's outside of our uh, skill set, and we don't know how we'd even go about it. But we will continue to work on it. Yeah, we'll work on it. I mean, we're, one of the things that 
one of the reasons you guys are getting so much content these days is because of partnering up with a, uh, it's, it's, I stop adding new projects every five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Now we're at every maybe 15 minutes. <laughs> when you stop adding projects every five minutes, this crazy thing happens where you actually get projects done. So now we need to get, uh, all I care about right now literally is number one, number two, eating um, marginal association with my family, but not too much and finishing nocturnal in the all pro. And then we'll go from there. Well, and it's interesting that you talk about the other properties and your uh, level of output because the remaining questions are a little less ancestor story specific and general Sigler verse and general Scott Shoot. Uh, sort of questions. I'm in. Uh, Jason Russell asks if any of your characters show up in more than one series, like maybe from Ancestor to Earthcore. And if only a few of them do, do you have plans for more of them too? It's one series. So first of all, all, literally all of the books that you have seen so far are all one series. It starts out, everything starts out with Infected, and then we'll stretch all the way through to the Rookie, the Starter, the All-Pro. The modern day novels, Infected, Contagious, Ancestor, then soon to be Nocturnal, Pandemic, Earthcore, etc., all of those are kind of in the same timeline. So what we did with the prequel for Ancestor is we introduced a lot of char- a lot of characters in those three prequel episodes that you're going to see. Um, you're going to see them in Nocturnal. You're going to see them in Pandemic. So yeah, there are recurring characters, including Paul Fisher, the baddest mofo in the room. <laughs> the mowest foe in the room. The, the most, <laughs> the most of all the foes in, in the room with the many leather books. Um, so yeah, so I'm working on that now more than ever. And now with, uh, with a rough timeline of like 20 to 30 books planned ahead is, you know, okay, well, I'm going to write this book in 15 years. What characters from that book can I put in the book I'm writing in 2012? So that when you, you know, it's, it's, this is all for junkies now, but it's, it's also more of a, of a trying to put in a super cool thunderbolt moment of excitement for somebody who just discovers me 10 years from now. Like there's some six year old who hasn't read anything. He turns 16, all of a sudden he starts reading my books and as he goes through them, he's like, holy crap, I saw that guy six books ago and now here he is. And yet these are unrelated books. It's, it's kind of magical. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's meant, it, it, you know, it's that big picture thing like Stephen King's The Dark Tower, except that there's no magic. Mm-hmm. And if you see somebody who happens to be uh, a 40-year-old African-American scientist in 2012, he's not going to be a 10-year-old white girl in 2022. You know, there's no magic transmorphification going on. So it's a little bit, it, it's, it's really, uh, really tough to do. But a lot of these characters you're going to see, you're going to see them again. And, I, and go ahead. I was going to say, you get a question quite often, and I actually wasn't going to include it here, but now it's so specific to what you're talking about, about Pookie Chang in Nocturnal and Pookie Chang in The Rookie. Uh, so many people are like, what? You don't write magic, but I saw Pookie in 700 mm-hmm. years later. What's that about? That That's, well, as you, if you've heard the Nocturnal podcast novel, Pookie, Pookie is, um, a, he's a ladies man. He's, <laughs> He's getting around quite a bit, and I think it's a safe bet that there are more than a few Pookie Juniors running around. So the, mm-hmm. the Pookie Chang that is in the Rookie series is the great, 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 and then probably a few more great grandsons of the Pookie Chang that you will be seeing in Nocturnal. So nice. he, he'll he be back. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trying to tie things together as much as possible. So it's, I guess now I go back and call myself a liar. 
A lot of these books aren't technically a series, like Infected Contagious Pandemic, that's a series, but all the books are in the same timeline, and I'm trying to get, I'm trying to create that bigger sense of universe so that you'll see a lot of characters recurring in different books. Somebody starts out with a bit part in Earthcore, and then five books later, they're ready for their turn on the red carpet as the star of the movie. Well, speaking of that, Mike Wirtz asked if there was any chance of you considering incorporating Kissy Man into the Ancestor series or the Contagious sequels to make some snazzy assassinations. Um, the, uh, at one point, I said, uh, no, Kissy Man's not in the timeline. There's no way we'll ever be able to connect him. He's you know too old. He'd be dead by now for sure. Um, and then a uh, reader came up with a really cool idea that I can't share right now. But yeah. But you can there, steal, right? Oh, it, well, he, he said something, and then I took that something he said and turned it into more of a real idea. <laughs> a, I find inspiration all about me. But when it comes to the real moments of genius, those are all mine and not theirs. So if you never lie, what, what exactly do you call what you just did? I call it gray amorphous past and selective, <laughs> selective remembrance. Nice. Uh, yeah. So, um, but yeah, we, there is going to be, I was super excited. <laughs> Someone said, oh, why don't, why don't you do this? And then I was like, well, that's a great idea. So there's a way to tie Kissy Man into the larger universe. So right now, uh, the timeline that starts in 2008 with Infected now, actually, was it 2009? I don't remember. Anyway, it starts with Infected. Now I've got a way to stretch that back to 1943, 44. And then there should be some great story. Someday I hope to have an Ancestor prequel with Clayton Detweiler mm. and the Rat Pack and Marilyn Monroe and Anne Margaret on Black Manitou Island. Nice. And there's, uh, we, we actually, A helped with that a lot. We set up references in ancestor to some of the things that clayton went through back in the day so that when clayton is telling the people around him you know there's there's giant genetically engineered monsters tearing people apart he's like yeah i've seen worse (laughs) yeah the remaining questions are are questions you actually answer with some frequency but i think they're worth repeating here and we have a few minutes left okay Um, mike langhorst said it best i had several people send this question in and he said he listened to it he went out and bought the audiobook and listened to the whole thing and then spent the next few months muttering to himself come on sigler when's your next book what's coming out next sigler release your next book already mm-hmm. which makes me laugh so he asks if nocturnal is actually going to be the next book available or will there be dark overlord published releases in the meantime as well Well, right now we will we're, we're just getting ready to start podcasting the starter so if you've already listened to the starter audiobook or if you've already read the starter hardcover, um, that would seem like there's going to be several months where there's no new stuff. After that, we don't really know what's coming after that. There'll be a big gap between when the starter ends and moving into 2012 when we would begin Nocturnal. So I'm hoping that we get some crypt in there and finish off the Kissy Man stories. Um, but right now, largely through March, there won't be anything new it'll be it'll be starter so if you haven't heard the starter that'll be in the podcast every week but then sometime about march or so i will be done with the all pro and be done with nocturnal and then uh, a and i will figure it out from there so i i imagine that at some point there will be some new experimental stuff going in the feed uh the next book that's out is the all pro which will be out in september the pre-order is on april 1st at scottsegler.com so that will be the next product that's a physical product that's actually out and then Nocturnal in spring of 2012. As far as print goes, that's all we have planned. 
and any other formats? Well, we're going to start hitting the ebook thing pretty hard. Uh, we're working on the Bloodcast season one with a brand new story in there, um, a brand new no- uh, novella. Yeah, I guess it'd be about 10,000 words. <clears throat> so uh, that's going to be one element. And then we're going to try, depending on how time permits, maybe we can get the Crypt Book one out as an ebook. Eventually, we'll be working on Bloodcast season two as an ebook. Title fight, uh, a lot of the stuff that you guys have heard in the podcast because the ebook market is just. That's where it's at for authors now. That it's really blowing up with the the growth of the ebook reader and people being able to sell their own stuff directly to the audience. It's like podcasting only with more money. <laughs> and the last question I actually have from a fan, you're sort of answering already, but I'll, I'll ask specifically: Jan Jacobs and his wife Bonnie both want to know when they can expect pandemic. Pandemic should be out spring of 2013. So I'll give you guys a quick rundown. Uh, the original deal with Crown is a it's a five book deal. It was a three-book deal for Infected Contagious, a book to be named later. Then after they got rolling with Infected and they were super excited, they decided to buy up Earthcore and Ancestor, take those off the market with the hopes of putting them out later. Um, that's when your FDO made a very rare mistake because I don't make mistakes very often. Um, I put out Infected and Contagious and then I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be a one-trick pony and just have this series and be done. So I thought I would put out Ancestor after that, which we did, which is great. Um, and then... Pandemic winds up getting pushed out a couple of years, which fits in the timeline just fine. Story-wise, don't worry about that. But then we're doing Nocturnal next, which means although Crown bought Earthcore, we're actually putting out Nocturnal. So we're kind of making a trade. We're going to get Earthcore back, so to speak, and they're going to take, well, here's the money we paid for Earthcore. You're going to give us Nocturnal. So that will go there. So then Nocturnal comes out spring 2012. Then hopefully uh, Pandemic spring of 2013 and then that's it. That's when Pandemic will be out. As far as what happens with Earthcore from there, we're not entirely sure. We'll see how that goes. Um, if you're not entirely sure what happens to Earthcore, what happens to Mount Fitzroy? Well, uh, there's not going to be a Mount Fitzroy until Earthcore gets rewritten. So there were so many changes in Ancestor um, and, and being able to tie Ancestor tighter into the timeline. That, that was just so cool from the storytelling perspective. We do need to rewrite Earthcore. Only after we rewrite Earthcore will we put out Mount Fitzroy. So it's probably going to happen is once, uh, once we give them Pandemic in late 2012 to be published in 2013, then uh, the agent and I will sit down with Crown, see if we want to continue with Crown, see if we want to go to another publisher. Both of those deals would involve Earthcore more than likely since it's finished and ready to go into the editorial process with a big publisher. If they don't want Earthcore, then A&I will be putting out Earthcore as a Dark Overlord media property, and then somewhere down the road we'll get to Mount Fitzroy. All right. Well, those were all the questions that came in for the Ancestor Q&A. This is your chance, which you never do, to put questions out there into the ether and ask the junkies anything that you want to know. Do I want to ask the junkies any questions? How much, how much money do you have in your pocket right now? That's <laughs> the general question. But that's scary because they may not be wearing pants. When well, I'm not this. wearing pants right now. So I think that's... Too much information. That works out very well. Man, these leather seats are sticky. Jeez, mm, oh, Way too much information. <laughs> uh, no, I, I have no questions for the junkies whatsoever. Just keep on listening. And when you feel like it, buy the books. And uh, if you don't have an e-reader now, I would suggest that you get one. Because that's where a lot of our cool stuff is going to be coming. Uh, can we, we can't tell them the name of the new story yet, can we? Uh, that's up to you. You are welcome to tell them if you'd like. Uh, I, okay, we'll, we'll reveal it right here. Uh, a story that will go into the Bloodcast ebook 
which will not be podcast for quite some time, we won't give you a specific time on that, is going to be called Hunter Hunterson and Son. (laughs) And it is my first, possibly only, foray into magic and the paranormal. (gasps) Yes. Wow, that's a lot of info right there at the end of your little Q&A. Not in the timeline, but super fun, I hope. Yeah. Hunter Hunterson and Sons. Yep. And I'm sorry, what was that you just said? Not in the timeline, and why isn't it in the timeline? I didn't say anything. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, that's an interesting little Easter egg at the end of the Q&A. And it's yeah. interesting because this is going to run in the Friday fix, as yeah. I said at the beginning of the of the hour. And um, hmm. Well, a lot of people, don't, uh, you know, some of the fans don't listen to the Friday fix, right. and some that do don't listen all the way to the end. So if you're hearing this right now, you've got some juicy information. <laughs> I'm like the Perez Hilton of podcasting. It's crazy. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Perez, for your time today. If you've got nothing else for the junkies, I've got nothing else for you. We'll call it a day. All right. Thanks so much. Heart Stephen King, Heart Chuck Palahniuk, Infected blends science fiction and horror into a pulpy masterpiece of action, terror, and suspense. James Rollins, New York Times bestselling author of The Judas Strain and Black Order. The Infected Trilogy is an unabridged three-season audio fiction series from number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Powerfully written, an unforgettable central character. Dallas Morning News. Infected is one hell of an exhilarating ride. Joe R. Lansdale, World Horror Convention Grand Grandmaster and author of Bubba Hotep and Hap and Leonard. All 88 episodes, 53 hours of horror, are free and available now wherever you listen to podcasts. Sigler is the Richard Matheson of the 21st century. Infected is a flawless thinking person's thriller. Jonathan Mayberry, Bram Stoker award-winning author of B-Wars and the Joe Ledger series. 